the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to the Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And this week I learned a lot from two top guests. Gisela Stewart is the Labour MP or former Labour MP that chaired the successful Vote Leave campaign. When it comes to the Brexit referendum, she was at the heart of it and the top of it. She came to the UK from Germany in the 1970s, got elected as the very essence of a Blairite MP in 1997. And then at the start of this century, Tony Blair gave her the job as one of the UK's representatives drawing up a new EU constitution. And it was actually this experience of working closely with the EU that turned her into a Brexiteer, initially backing a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty and then stepping up to call for and win Britain's withdrawal from the EU in 2016. And from the UK and a changing Europe's roster of experts, we were joined by Professor Catherine Barnard, Professor of EU Law at the University of Cambridge, they do not come much more straight-up experts than she is. I'll be back at the end of the conversation with uh, some observations and gubbins and all that sort of stuff. But we started what would turn out to be a fairly spiky chat, actually, talking about how Gisela came to be a Brexiteer. They're Brexiteers and they're Brexiteers. Uh, there is UKIP and there was Vote yeah. Leave. Uh, what I went to do is uh, chair the board of Vote Leave, which was campaigning to get the nomination to be the official Leave campaign. Mm. And one of the people who was uh, exceptionally important in that whole process to me personally actually was David Owen. Right. Who, uh, because, you know, politically, what am I? I'm, I am a continental social democrat. Yeah. And they kind of don't have a natural party in UK politics other than when Blair arrived. You know, mm. I was instinctively unbelievably comfortable with the Blair Labour Party. And probably if I joined the political party in the 80s, it would not have been Labour. It would have been the SDP. Okay. So for someone like David Owen, who left the Labour Party in the 80s over Europe, to then be a campaigner, to vote to leave in this referendum... That was that made me realize, whilst it may sound to many people an unusual journey, mm. it wasn't a solitary journey. Okay, um, and then yeah, we come to the referendum. Uh, you have said, but let me just also go back that if Vote Leave had not got the designation, yeah, to be the official campaign, and if it had been uh, Aaron Banks and UKIP, that would have been the moment I again would have fallen silent. I would have said. I've tried, but I'm not campaigning on that agenda. <laughs> but it it's, it's becomes more complicated, doesn't it, in one sense, because Vote Leave did piggyback to an extent on what uh, Aaron Banks and the others were doing. Well, in what sense? In I mean, the, for example, about over-immigration, you know, the posters, the, fame, the infamous um, uh, Nigel Farage poster of all of these people queued up, apparently coming into Dover, in fact, on the Hungarian border. So you're border. saying well, we were responsible for that poster? No, no, quite the contrary. But there was Vote Leave had a poster which was rather similar, with a similar sort of green background. No, what, what, what was the Vote Leave poster? It had, had boundaries, given that 
that Germany had just uh, subcontracted border control to Turkey. And Cameron was spending all that money on Turkish accession and Cameron during the whole campaign when challenged said he would not veto Turkish accession. So let's not rewrite history. Now, when you say piggy bank, that would suggest some collusion. We had no control over what UKIP does. But then there wouldn't have been a referendum if it hadn't been for UKIP, right? Yeah, but what's that I got mean, to do with my position? Well, right, but then, I don't know if you call it piggyback. You can't, piggybacking is maybe not the, the phrase, but we got to where we were because of UKIP and whatever there. You could argue we got to where we were because of... Um, Lisbon. No, uh, of uh, Goldsmith's decision in the Independence Party, in the re- referendum party in 1997. Was, yeah. it, was it Goldsmith Party and the referendum party which gave a push to Blair to agree that there was a referendum on Europe? I mean, there's no historic decision which doesn't have an entire spectrum. But what I resent, and it's one of the things which I still find, uh, let's put it bluntly, irritating, is this assumption that... Uh, you still have, because of some of the more extremes of UKIP, and Vote Leave was a completely different organisation, you know, and went to great length, not just because of the Electoral Commission uh, requirements that we were separate, but also, you know, for, 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 for my own satisfaction, there's still this sneering kind of thing that really, really underneath it, those who voted to leave were not very bright, were racist, and just not really with it. Do you want to, there's a spectrum though, isn't there? In the sense that the Leave campaign went from, I'd put yourself at one end of the spectrum, and Aaron Banks, frankly acting mad, some of the stuff he said and did, his concert and all that sort of nonsense, um, at the other end. Um, but you're on the same spectrum, no? Well, I mean, if you face with a binary question, at the end I have to say yes or no, uh, what do you do with the spectrum? Both sides have a spectrum. I yeah. mean, the other yeah. side had an equal spectrum from... Uh, well, the other side, I, I respected those more who kind of, you know, like Ken Clark, who essentially hasn't changed his mind for, <laughs> yes. uh, for the last 30 years. Uh, and that was a perfectly legitimate view. Uh, so the other side had an equal spectrum. Yeah. And what's quite interesting is... Who was at the far end of that spectrum? Who was the rabid Remainers? Oh, uh, Tim Farron. Okay. You know, the, they want a federal state. Now, let's be open, that's fine too. Okay. So, so yeah. you've got the... And what... Uh, and I'm slightly jumping ahead now, but one of the things after the referendum, which when we then set up Change Britain, what was quite... It, we did a lot of market research on there, and that showed us the project fear did work, mm. and that something like 18% of those who voted to remain voted were, were what you called reluctant remainers, mm. who were quite content with the decision once you had it. <laughs> They say, now let's get on with it. And then you had that different spectrum, which was between what the public said and you still had the entire media out there going, oh, this is awful. I have got a lot of time for the reluctant Remainers. I think they're very British because basically what they said yeah. was, it'll be such a fag to leave, let's not bother. Not that we don't. Yeah, but, but, not, not that we like it or not. It's just too much effort. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> that's proving to be the case, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, that, but that's part of the spectrum. Well, you know, democracy isn't easy. You know, democracy is always an effort. So, how well served is democracy by referendums? Well, I think that's a really big question. Uh, in parliamentary uh, democracies, the tool of the referenda has to be used with exceptional care, and I don't think David Cameron used it with the care that is required. But 
Don't use then what people then say, oh, so if you think that the circumstances under which Cameron caused that referendum are flawed, which I think they are, and I think as a parliament we have to return to the use of referenda, that does not undermine what he's done. You know, We had a set of rules which mm. parliament voted on by a massive majority. All processes in democracies, whether it's using first-past-the-post, whether it's you know, a proportional system, do never, ever, ever go into a democratic process where when you then don't like the outcome, say, oh, retrospectively, if the rules have been different. No, these were those rules. Going forward, uh, what I find most puzzling uh, is that the Welsh referendum, which was run on a turnout of just over 50%, which Welsh referendum is this? Uh, the one in two was it two thousand one or ninety nine? So just given the devolution the one. Yeah, the yeah, devolution one. Ninety seven, wasn't it? Yeah. No, it was slightly later than that. Oh, okay. It was because oh, ninety seven we came in, we set up the Scottish yeah. Parliament, and then the Welsh referendum was slightly later. Oh, was it? Gosh, it must yeah. be slightly later because I remember getting the results sitting on an aeroplane to South Africa. Uh, <laughs> so it probably. What? How could you get what? <laughs> we didn't have for mobile phones in those days. How did you get the results on an aeroplane? The stewardess was one of my former students. <laughs> <laughs> How did they get the information? Well, 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 when was this plane? Well, was it plane flying still, from Cardiff to South Africa? But I remember her coming up and saying, I thought you might like to know it was won by 0.7%. Uh, <laughs> but, did but, they give you the football scores at the same time? <laughs> no, she knows I'm not the slightest bit interested in football. But, but what's interesting is that you had a... a turnover of just over 50%, yeah. a very narrow margin, mm. and nobody questioned the result. Mm. And yet you had the referendum in 2016 with a massive turnout, and 3.8% is a clear result. You know, If you said anybody in the House of Commons with a majority of less than 3.8% is a dodgy <laughs> MP, you know, try that one on. Yeah. Uh, and yet a year on, you are still looking at me like saying... AC Grayling does the television studios outrage of, you know, this needs to be changed. And that tells us something. And what it tells us is that there's no faith in the process. And my evidence for that would be is, just think back to 2010, the one thing which was definitely not on the ballot paper was a coalition government. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. nobody, but nobody voted to have Lib Dems in the cabinet. And yet... <clears throat> But can you compare elections with referendums? Because What's the difference? Well, the idea, obviously, is that with an election, somehow there's this wisdom of crowds idea. It's like the last election. Somehow, the, referendum somehow the UK voted to take away Theresa May's majority and Hamstrunner and all the rest of it. Um, and somehow that is... So the crowd's stupid in referenda, but no, why but is it general election? Um, is it, isn't the point more... There's lots of different outcomes to an election, whereas with a referendum, it's obviously... It's binary, no, 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 no. The, 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 the outcomes, you... In essence, you still got two or three boxes. You have one cross to make against mm -hmm. one box. But the difference with the referendum, which I think is a point you've made before, isn't it? That with a referendum, there's no subsequent accountability. There is in in well, it depends who wins. I mean, no, no, in a parliamentary there is, process, there's accountability it depends on who wins. You see, the thing is, uh, if the if would you have said the same if the vote had been to remain? Well, I suppose, yeah, because I think what's really striking... No, no, think... not supposed. Just take me through. Just let's, let's reverse these tables and sit here and tell me why the government who campaigned to remain and is now one to remain is not accountable for the outcome. 
Well, they would. I suppose the government would say they would. They they advocated remain in a changed Europe, and that mm. they would be working for a changed Europe. And then the accountability would have been ultimately through the ballot box at the next election. They would have been kicked out if they'd not managed to deliver on a changed Europe. I mean, I think what's very striking about the referendum. It was essentially a one-trick pony that you have. But how can you have a two-trick referendum pony? Well, but there was no manifesto. Each side could say more or less what they liked. And then, of course, the um, the organisations which fronted both the leave, Vote Leave and, and, and Remain have disappeared. They've, they were folded up almost well, overnight. Well, no, they haven't. You know, this is where it's, which is quite extraordinary. The, the, the organisations which fronted Remain were the government... Uh, the universities, the CBI, the IOD, the Guardian, the FT, and those who did voted campaigned to the Treasury, Madame Lagarde, President Obama, you know, and there you had just before the purda a leaflet going out to every household on which the government spent what nine point four million, mm-hmm. mm. and then the campaign to leave its entire budget was less, its entire budget, which it was allowed to fundraise, was less than what the government spent on one household drop. But the fact is that the vote leave infrastructure was folded folded up almost overnight. And then... um, But he had to. That was a legal requirement. Sure, but there's but the point is about that there was no manifesto for vote leave. There was a manifesto to leave, but it, on what terms was never spelt out, and okay. so therefore you've got a spectrum within. If, if the three leading, voting. if the three leaders of vote leave were broadly speaking Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, and me, mm. uh, there was one thing which we had never had any doubts about was that we would leave the single market, and if you left. And we would not be part of the customs union. And if you wanted to get stop freedom of movement of people, you could not be in the single market. How could it have been more clearer? Because people weren't voting for you. People weren't voting for vote leave. People, are, people might have voted because they wanted to vote for grassroots out or something. Isn't oh, that, do you have any idea in any elections what people's reasons are? Well, but, if, but, but, but at least there's a manifesto stop, stop, stop. Which... You, you're, now, you're now conflating people's reasons for voting. The only you, you can make a case of did we say anything about a transition period? Did we say anything about continued payment? You're absolutely right. We did not. We were what we were clear is an end to the role of the ECJ and leaving the single market. Let's just, Daniel, Daniel Hannan has, has been on record saying that there'd be lots of people who will have been on record saying anything. But if the officially designated organisation that the electoral commission designated, I was its chair. We appeared in the Wembley debates. We appeared in ITV debates, and that's the one thing they said. Can we just? Uh, I'm I'm interested about your views on immigration. I'm not really interested in rerunning the referendum. No, I'm I mean I, I, yeah, and that's well. a very serious point. Is I think that let shouldn't we start talking about where we go from here? Mm. And so I want to talk to you about immigration because I think that's. That's interesting. I think your views, I mean, obviously your own personal experience, obviously you were um, a, a migrant yourself once, um, um, and um, and you chaired the British Future Inquiry. Mm. Um, and that seemed to say that those EU citizens who are already here sh- should be entitled to stay, and um, we should make that unilateral offer. Mm. 
Um, obviously, the UK head government hasn't done so. Are you disappointed? I thought that they missed a moment, and to make that as an opening statement, uh, as a gesture of goodwill, uh, I think that should have been the starting point. But it wasn't. You know, politics is like that. Uh, so you've now got a position where the argument is over the ECJ, uh, the role of the ECJ. Mm. I'm very disappointed that we've got a position where it seems to me that neither the Commission nor, you know, nor the European Parliament, in a sense, actually want to make any progress. You know, negotiations require two. Mm. two. And, and I thought Martin Howe's suggestion of that you, you, you set up an arbitration it's fine. You see, what, what I'm trying to work out, can you think of one thing when, when we talk about the European Court of Justice, because that's now really the sticking point, can you think me of one, tell me one thing which you think a British court would do from which someone required protection from the ECJ? Mm. Well, I, I think, defer to the law expert. <laughs> I think the answer, I mean, Theresa May regularly says, and she's absolutely right, we've got highly respected courts and highly respected judges. Um, and that's absolutely cl- clear, and I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I think the, the, the bigger issue is parliamentary sovereignty, which, of mm. course, is what um, those who are um, advocating leave were so keen on, is that it means that even if we agree today to give, to match, for example, all the rights that you citizens have now got, and that those, it, those rights will be matched on the 30th of March 2019, there's nothing to stop Parliament of the 1st of April 2019 saying actually we're changing our mind um, because that's of course the essence of parliamentary sovereignty and British judges British courts will have to comply with that later instruction I and think, that's, the, and, that's, I think and, that's, and that's what the that's what the concern is and so that's why I think you will we, find that since setting up of the Supreme Court and the incorporation of various international things the, you know, the, the old pepper and heart rulings uh, are kind of back in our law student days. The court is slightly more protectionist. The fund, parliamentary sovereignty still exists, but we no longer have parliamentary sufficiency. I think, I think we can... So it's now give me one example where this has happened. Where the, the parliament has, has rode back on kind of individual rights from which you would have required any protection from the courts? Well, at the moment, EU law constrains Parliament from doing that in a lot no, of no, key areas. No, look, uh, I'm, I'm old enough to kind of know that when it came to the rights of disability rights, when it came to all kinds of things, the British courts and British Parliament had always been about 10, 20 years ahead. Just take it, Germany last weekend celebrated its first same-sex marriage, you know, that made the headlines. The British courts were instrumental in setting up the European Court, the, the Court on Human Rights. Uh, uh, but the British so, courts didn't. It was, I mean, it was the British government. British was government kind of, yeah. so, so give me one example where A, you think uh, this would But the other thing, give me one country that having left a union would continue to give its court automatic, a different court automatic supremacy. Well, of course, as we know, no country has left the EU apart from um, Greenland, which is rather special, and Algeria, which is also rather special. Mm. So no, this no, is... but any international construct, that's part of le- leaving is the, the European Court of Justice. If, if the Co- European Court of Justice still has a role, then we have not left. I'm, all I'm just saying, you asked me to explain why, yeah. what the concern was and why the EU is still pushing 
Um, and the, the, the answer is a legal one, that the, the EU side know that Parliament can change its mind. At the moment, EU citizens will have the backstop of EU law protecting them. And that's what, that's what the EU is worried about. They understand the Miller judgment. They understand parliamentary sovereignty. Oh. OK, let's spin forward then to what, where we are now. Your chair of Change Europe. Britain. Change Britain. Listen, I call UK. Yeah, I'm always calling UK and a changing Europe. I'm always calling them Britain and a changing Europe, which I'm supposed to get right. Well. I get that one wrong. Um, yes. What's your role now? What, what do you do? What, what does that entail? Change, well, we, we kind of originally had assumed that uh, 24th of June 2016, uh, according to the Electoral Commission rules, uh, both the Remain and the Leave campaign would have to cease as legal entities and the government would take over. Mm. Uh, what I had not anticipated was the continued venom, and I do mean venom. Uh, I just kept six weeks' worth of abusive emails, which I got after the referendum, and they are seven A4 folders. I have never seen anything like that. And it was after the event. It wasn't before, it was after. And so we then sort of thought, we, you know, uh, government can do certain things, but we, we have to try and get leavers and remainers to work together. So the thing which is now specific to, to change Britain is not just their cooperation, but also because we also destroyed all our database, which again was part of the Electoral Commission, uh, is we, we re-established a, a database on the Change Britain uh, where, you know, like when the repeal bill is debated, people can, you know, get okay. an email and they can write to their MPs. On the venom, yeah. um, first of all, why? Why do you get so much venom? Is it you in particular? I don't know. Uh, it was, I find it quite extraordinary that it's the first time in my life in politics where people did not engage in the substance, but there was an assumption that there were some people who were good and good people voted remain, and there were people who were bad and they voted to leave. And I give you just one example of a very serious senior journalist who I've known for a very long time, who after the Turkish coup sent me an email saying, look what you've done. So he wrote him back saying, I know I'm enormously powerful, but I don't think the failed Turkish coup really is my, um, you know, uh, my achievement or fault. Why don't we have a cup of coffee? And he emailed back seriously and said, I don't need to have a cup of coffee with you because you and I, we both know that your kind of politics leads to gas chambers. And I just thought, you know, yeah, the language which was used. <laughs> but this is not unique to obviously just you. We know obviously with um, the parliamentary inquiry into what MPs are being yeah. subject mm. to of, right across the spectrum. We know what Laura Koonsberg is being ex yeah. exposed to, and you know at a much more minor level, any academic who puts their head above the parapet also gets this mm. abuse. So I suppose the question is, how can we engage in a more mature? debate because obviously we're leaving the European Union um, and there are some really big decisions that have got to be taken. Um, how can we go beyond the name calling and engage in a proper debate well, protecting I, those who are no, in some you, way... You, you're right, but the starting point has to be. Your starting point is still as if the vote to leave is a bit like an illness that requires to be explained and then somehow remedied rather than just saying 
Well, that was the decision. Now, what do we do with it? It was an aberration in terms of British politics, surely, in that nobody was expecting it. It's upturned the apple cart in spectacular so, style. So we need means, to try and understand. Aberration uh, implies that something wasn't quite right. No aberration in the sense that it was different. That's all. So no the moral judgment. Nineteen ninety-two election was different. Nobody expected John Major to win. Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, I'd say ninety-seven as well but, was but an aberration. No, I mean, quite clearly because. But, but that, there wasn't that this the kind of attitude of sort of. 2010 was an aberration. 2015, David Cameron didn't think he would actually win. He went into yeah. the election promising all kinds of stuff because he thought he'd have another... So, so what's happened is that I think political... And, and you're absolutely right that in terms of if you regard the process of democracy to be kind of mob rule here and bureaucratic tyranny here and both need to be uh, narrated... Uh, and people who broadly believe believe the same form political parties and election processes is where you test the relative strength of these kind of mm. groups of people. And they meet in places called Parliament, where on the basis of pre-agreed rules, you kind of then represent your representative democracy. A lot of those assumptions, I think, are really changing. Yeah. Yes, there's, yes, there's a lot of assumptions changing yeah. in the recent, <laughs> recent and history. And political, uh, natural political alliances, the kind of the, the combinations of values and which party you then vote for, that's really changing. There's a really big age divide mm. where sort of, you know, whether you want to put it around 40 or 45, certainly the under 35s don't believe in the contributory principle anymore in the way the older generation mm. did. So they're big changes, but to sort of pick out the, the, the referendum of being specific, I think it probably crystallised a mm. lot of things more starkly, but it's neither the cause. Well, let's put it another way then. Where we are now, did you expect in June 2016, everywhere we are now in terms of the negotiations and the, the, the government and all the rest of it, has it sort of panned out as you expected? I didn't think Theresa May would lose the election the way she did. I didn't think uh, Angela Merkel uh, would not end up with uh, a halfway decent coalition, which kind of uh, extends the whole thing. So, no, the, there are a number of things where, you know, certainly didn't think, you know, the United States of America would have a president called Trump. Uh, so, yes, there are a whole lot of things. What, however, the thing which right now surprises me more than anything else is that there's still chunks, and more of them actually in mainland Europe than here, who think that the real job is to make sure that the referendum doesn't get implemented. Shouldn't you have seen it coming? Shouldn't you have war-gamed it and expected this? Or is that just not your so, job? Your so job you, is just so, the So you have an organisation that is set up yeah. From how many weeks from getting designation to the referendum? Three months? Not many, yeah. Uh, it is given £700,000 and is allowed to raise £6.3 million. Uh, it is run compared to the entire treasure and everything as out of two floors in the Westminster Tower. Um, no. Okay. okay. <laughs> all right. But now, all right, and now, in your position now, we can talk about what happens in the future. It is surely your job, your role, to think about how Brexit happens and what happens mm. after that. And that's why I go on doing it, and that's where you are right. I am in a very difficult position, or unusual position, is that whilst I uh, 
I'm a my game plan, you know, this is plan mm. is that I would step down in 2020. I would have yeah. been 65, I would have done, you know, fine, all great. So the the, the, the lecturement, I, I stepped down earlier from Parliament, but there was never any scintilla of, of a doubt that this was what I was going to do. Uh, but I'm now doing, you know, I'm doing more politics than I've ever done before, it's just not in, 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 in Parliament. But the, the unusualness of my position is that, you know, I am a Labour politician and whilst I want a Labour, you know, I don't particularly want a Conservative government. However, I do want Brexit to be implemented properly. So I'm kind of just sidelining and just work on how to make Brexit happen. So, so how, how do you think your fellow um, chairs of chair of the um, uh, Vote Leave um, and the, your fellow campaigners are doing at the moment? Uh, that's why I just say that's a Tory government, it's a Tory cabinet. Uh, we, we went back to our bits and I do the bits which I can yeah, do. Yeah, but you can, still go, you can still think whether they're doing a good job or not. It doesn't matter, especially because they're in a different party. And, just they're, because and, you, and they're the ones who are they're, meant to be delivering Brexit. Well, I think they are doing a more... They are doing a... Well, the real problem is in the Tory party that you have, you know, I went to Jewish Board of Deputies dinner and Ruth Davidson was still going on about how if there was another referendum she voted to remain and, you know, this kind of very reluctant implementation. So I just I just wish that, you know, if we talk about ownership, you were early on accusing me of not taking ownership. Well, the Tory party in a Tory government, it is their ownership and I think, you know, they should say, and now we make the best of it. So I have some frustration with members of the Tory cabinet who don't see their role is to properly implement it. But Which ones? I mean, the, the, there is a strong and quite vocal um, dimension of the cabinet, particularly Boris Johnson, um, who is you know, obviously making very strong moves to deliver Brexit and probably a hard Brexit, at least, as you in your version, the no single market, no customs union. Do you think he's helping the process by making the case, or do you think he's hindering it? Well, you make your judgment. I mean, look, I just You're asking to... for your judgment. No, You've worked no, with no him. on this one. I'm, I'm going to stick to what I can influence and what I can do, and about other people, you make your own judgment. So what are you going to influence? What are you going to do? I mean, how do you see it playing out, and what, what are you going to do to try and alter that plan such as it is at the moment? Well, bits which I can do and very few other people can do is I can actually do a fair amount of work with the Germans on where you should do it, um, you know, and I, I do that. But I'm just not going to get into, you know, this is the great luxury. I am no longer a democratically elected politician. For I no longer have a duty to have a view on anything. Um, for now. <laughs> um, right, for now. All right, well, OK, let's put it this way. I could You're... go home and, and do the ironing. And that'd be perfectly all right too. Would you, you enjoy could. That? Would you enjoy that? Or would you not find that deeply frustrating, given that you know this is the moment that you've been campaigning for? Well, as I'm not doing the ironing, I think you've just answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we can't see piles of ironing sitting around your flat, so maybe no. they're, they're done somewhere else. Okay, so you're involved. What about Theresa May phones you up and says, "Right, it's not going great. It's a bit, a bit shambolic at the moment." Let's have a cross-party, a unity negotiating team. Lady Giesler of Edgebaston, you will lead it. What do you say? 
I have, well, I thought it was interesting that she set up the, the separate Brexit departments. It's interesting how she's moving some bits into cabinet. There's, there's one basic rule of politics you always have to remember, is that whatever the question, identify the dog and identify the lamppost. Mm-hmm. And you never get between those. So, right. as I'm a Labour politician, yes, and you're inviting me to get in between uh, tensions within Tories. Sorry, no, no, not my dog, not my lamppost. No. Theresa May's going to phone you up and say this is it's a motion of you know moment of national not tell crisis but national what. unity or something is needed. Let's wait till she makes that phone call and then we see. All right, but then what are you going to say when she does? I'll wait what happened. Oh, come on. <laughs> Has she made that phone call? Has anybody approached you? <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Look, why, why, no, I, it's the ironing question. No, as, I, as you're not answering it. I'm, doing change, like, I'm doing change button. What more do you want me to do? So are you saying nobody from the government has phoned you up and asked you to come on board and help with Brexit? I'm, what do you think change button is? Well, it's not a government. It's help, and, no, but you see, the minute it is part of government... Uh, then you you're in kind of camps, and the thing which I've been trying to do is keep working whether it's on the change Britain, whether the work which we do up in which we did in the West Midlands, on the Commission for National Renewal, which had uh, Maurice Glassman on the left and Robert Salisbury on the right. Uh, they're kind of various bits, and that's what I can do because I can do it, and no one else can do it, and that's the bit which I'm focusing right, on. So- has anybody from the government asked you to get involved in the Brexit process? I am involved in the Brexit process. In a government slash official capacity? I think you probably would have noticed by now, wouldn't you? Well, not if you said no. Not if, you said, <laughs> not if you'd said, no, I want to do it from the Change Britain perspective. Well, I've never said Maybe any that doubt be your that answer. I'm doing Change Britain. Have you said that to somebody from the government who has asked you to do it in a see, different capacity? You see, this is the beauty. As I'm no longer an MP, I don't have to answer any of these questions. No, you don't have to. <laughs> but I can keep asking. Um, what about, what about your own party? I, I always remember there was this wonderful uh, James Bolton uh, interview with Humphreys. And mm. uh, Humphreys kept asking him the same question. And then James Bolton suddenly said, Well, Mr Humphreys, it should be perfectly obvious to you by now that I have no intention of answering the question. But if you weren't going asking, I, I, it's quite fun watching you. Oh, yeah, don't get me started on Humphreys. <laughs> <laughs> what about your own party? How, what's, what's your thoughts about how Labour are handling the um, Brexit issue? It's kind of odd, not odd. When, when it came to the question of Europe, uh, since 2005, my colleagues have always sort of said, you know, if it's got Europe in it, it goes slightly funny. Um, the problem the Labour Party's got, and I think it is a, 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 a real problem, is that you you could, and it takes us back to the beginning of, of, of a reshaping of the political landscape, it is perfectly conceivable that uh, if that shift, that generational shift mm. of voting intention is not just temporary, but is a permanent way of realignment of the political landscape, mm. that the Labour Party becomes the UK equivalent of the Democrats. So it becomes a, 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 a rights-based, public sector worker, uh, very urban party. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, yeah. of course, then is a problem. Uh, and this is why you, you get that kind of divide. And probably the, the classic, classic example, if you were to uh, listen to people like Caroline Flint uh, or uh, 
you know, Natasha Engel who lost her seat. Mm. If in the last election you had in your constituency a university, uh, public sector workers and significant ethnic minorities, you were fine. So mm. the seat of Edgbaston, which had never been Labour before since 1997, yeah. was always a marginal, which is why after 20 years I decided I had earned myself a break. Actually now I had a majority of 7,000. Mm-hmm. So that's that big shift. But yeah. what that but you know, Natasha Engel loses her seat in Derbyshire. If you have a seat which has no university, hardly any public sector workers, and is largely uh, white, then the Labour vote it really comes under pressure. And the, the Labour Party needs to, at some stage, be clear that just winning North Islington with ever-increased majorities, but losing seats in the North East and the North West, will not be that next heave into government. What do you see as an immigration, what, what shape might an immigration policy look like post-Brexit? It's very interesting. Uh, we, uh, sort of after the, the election, sort of under Change Britain, we did the massive research, including, uh, you know, we did about 2,000 interviews before the election, 2,000 after. We did focus groups in mm-hmm. Remain constituencies and in Leave constituencies. And the one thing which was uh, always real eye-opener, uh, you'd start immigration and... In, in the Remain ones, I say, well, they're all racists. I say, okay, they're all racists. Um, well, of course they are racists. I say, okay, 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 no, they're all racists. So what kind of immigration policy do you want? And irrespective of whether you were talking about a Leave or Remain one, within a very short period, they wanted an Australian-style point system. But that's slightly odd, isn't it? Because we do have an Australian-style point system already. I mean, we wouldn't call it an Australian point, but it is a point system but, already. But for non- they're non-leave. wanted for all. What about the NHS? What about the three hundred and fifty million? Do you think? Do you do you still think that that money will go back, or do you think the costs of the whole Brexit endeavour will eat up any savings from the um, ten billion um, membership fee? Well, he certainly will have no longer the. You know, the, I think you have to distinguish between the period in which you're leaving and the transition period, which I think. But but after that, it does freed up, and the three hundred fifty million is very interesting. If it had been 400 million, it would not have been true. The net, the gross contribution, according to the pink book, is 370 odd something. And everybody remembers the 350 million, and nobody remembers George Osborne's punishment budget, the way they're going to be 400, what was it, 4,853. And this was the point where he said a hell of a lot of money goes to Brussels over which we've lost control. Now, Whatever anybody else said, I was very careful. It was the control over the money. And I would have spent a significant amount of that on the NHS. It's an interesting argument about 350 million, isn't but it? But we did some research after the uh, uh, referendum. Because, again, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was really important to understand this, mm. uh, what, the, the, you know, what the people voted for. If, if that had been, you know... If, if, if the research had mm. come back and sort of saying, well, I voted to leave because I wanted all that money to go into the NHS, no. Dominic, yeah. Cum- Dominic Cummings has said publicly that he thought the 350 million swung, swung the... Oh, because it was the moot point. It was the argument. People would go and say, 350 million, I would say it's a gross figure. Then you would say, but net is 184. I said, yeah, but hell of a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, but in terms of the percentage, of course, of GDP, it's... it's well, but then, you know, what, but, but, what I thought was quite interesting is when then the FT 
published the, the, the referendum bill of 100 billion. Mm. And I actually, I, I, I sat there at a dinner with the uh, editor of the FT the night before they were going to publish that. And he was saying, tomorrow we're going to publish the 100 billion. And I said, is that a gross figure? <laughs> and he said, yes. So I said, so the 350 million gross were okay. And he refused to speak to me for the rest of the evening. You seem to have fallen over quite a lot of people over this. Was it, was it really worth it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so do you sleep well at night? Yeah. Oh, that's one thing I always do. I sleep exceptionally well. <laughs> let's, um, yeah, let's finish up yeah. with uh, the features. The features, first of all, uh, the best thing and the worst thing, which has a jingle that sounds like this. <laughs> best thing! Oh. Worst thing. What is going to be the worst thing about Brexit? It, it has divided families and it has divided, uh, but, but then quite often big political decisions do it didn't fall along uh, political lines. And the, the thing, I, I think that was the worst of Brexit. There was a big referendum a couple of years previously in a place called Scotland. Given the, the Scottish experience, shouldn't all sites perhaps have thought more about the divisions and tried to build in some sort of mechanism a sort of, some sort of reunification mechanism for post-referendum. Ask Mr Cameron. Well, he was on one side. I was saying all sides should have thought about it, no? No, no, no. no. I mean, we didn't... He called a referendum. Yeah. I, I was made to make a decision. That was my decision. And that was, in my judgment, the right thing to have done. Hmm. The, the framework and the parameters were entirely set by the, by the very Prime Minister who, within hours of having had the result, decides to go. But he couldn't have stayed, could he? He would have been so weakened, he couldn't have stayed. Uh, there, there are ways of leaving and ways of leaving. Mm. True. Okay, listen, uh, the best thing about Brexit then, what's going to be the best thing? Oh, it is that, uh, you, you, and this is where we've got to get out of the laziness, we can actually think anew. And, be, I mean, I'll I give you a classic example. I talked to a guy from the National Farmers Union. And uh, being a good Bavarian farmer's daughter, I mm. kind of remember for years and years and years, you know, the Brits complaining about the agricultural policy and what have you. I said, look, what policy do you want? I mean, you now have the chance to actually decide. You know, you, you tell me the, the three crop rotation rules are mad, so what would you like? What do we pay for? And they actually had to admit, they said, you know, we've spent decades now lobbying in response to something. Mm. And now you've got that challenge to really think about it. And I think that is the most exciting. And, I, you know, this is the first generation I can think of that can rewrite whole swathe of rules internally, but also in how a relation to our relationship with the rest of the world. And it's doing so in peacetime conditions. That's a very Brexiteer outlook, because there it are is. people who would say... Oh, we're going to have to rewrite the rules. We'll probably get it all wrong. It'll be rubbish. They'll get all the rules wrong. It'll be terrible. It's a very optimistic suggestion that we'll, we'll write the rules and get it right. Uh, well, absolutely, we need a bit more optimism, I suspect, in, in all politics but for poli the last few years and decades, maybe. In, see, this is the difference between continental and uh, Anglo-Saxon politics in some ways. Uh, the, and it's a very sort of teleological uh, Christian view of the world, that, you, that there is such a thing as the right answer. That whatever the problem is, you yeah. you know you sit in a horseshoe. You're not adversarial. You just talk about it long enough, and it's that process of continued discussion allows you to discover what the right answer is. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon view, and this is very much the way you know even the House of Commons with the Yeo and mm. May goes and says, 
and I think it's a kind of seafaring view, that the seafaring nations know that you cannot control the waves. I mean, all you ever can do is ride them. And therefore, you are faced with a problem and you come up with which, at that given time, on those circumstances and conditions, is the most appropriate response to a problem. Okay, let's finish with recommendations. The feature is called, and I get the name wrong every time, in the unlikely event this podcast has failed to prove sufficiently enlightening. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Recommendations, we'll start with Catherine. What would you reckon? I want to know about Brexit. Where do, what do I do? What do I read? What do I watch? Read Keshu Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day. Why am I going to read The Remains of the Day? Because it's an interesting reflection on um, societal change and attitudes towards Europe and uh, obviously in a fiction historical context, but nevertheless it's, um, there's some very re- resonant quotes in there from Lord Darlington reflecting on what um, Giza Stewart talks about, about the, where the referendum, whether the populace should or should not have a vote over these issues of, mm. of major um, constitutional change. That in remains of the day. I've never read it. I, yeah, can I watch the film instead? No, read the book. You've got to read the book. Oh, oh man, it'd be a lot quicker to read the book. The film's supposed to be good, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but the, 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 the book's better. Always the case. Book's always better than the film. Gisela, how do I understand Brexit? Where do I go? If you want a historic, and this I'm now shamelessly saying, my, my eldest son is an architect and he does podcasts. And in the run-up to the referendum, he, who usually is not interested in politics, uh, said to me, Mum, what's all this about? And we had. He was asking the right person. He did, and we had a uh, an hour long podcast which you can find under Create More Podcast, episode twenty one, Brexit campaign, Gisela Stewart, and no surprises that my interviewer is a guy called Ben Stewart. Okay, Create More Podcast. There we go. Okay, Create More. And it's episode twenty one because usually he's an architect. What about the other episodes? Are they no good? Oh, they're they're about architecture. Okay, they won't do anything about Brexit. He he just became political at one stage because see the architects were all arch remainers, and I think he suddenly thought that in this in this environment where everybody thought that his mother was doing evil things, he better (laughs) understands what his mother was up to. (laughs) Well, that's true. Do they do extensions? Is there any, mm. any podcast about extensions? I could do one of them. No. <laughs> but he said, he's the one who, because after the referendum result was, was announced, uh, uh, you know, I, I was on the train uh, from, from Manchester, so I was fast asleep. So the train comes into use, and I didn't realise that um, David Cameron had resigned. So he sent me this text message which said, uh, holy shit, mother, you have just taken us out of the EU. Uh, remove the Prime Minister, and about, you're about to take civilians of the stock market uh, <laughs> what are your plans for tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> and I text you back saying mowing the lawn Gisela Stewart there fan of mowing the lawn and deposing prime ministers and winning referendums not a fan of rerunning the Brexit referendum uh, that was quite the chat wasn't it Gisela had us round to her place could hear her clock ticking away in the background and she was very pleasant company and very nice but she wasn't keen on some of our questions was she there was a lot to chew on there um, i'm always amazed at some politicians and despite uh, gisela's claims to have uh, stepped out with the political arena I'm, i think she's still a politician to all intents and purposes um, i'm always amazed at the way some politicians seem surprised to be asked questions uh, i mean she chaired the leave campaign so i think 
it's not unreasonable to ask her questions about it. And when we have prominent Remainers on later episodes, which we will, we've got a few lined up already, uh, they'll get asked about that campaign and about their position. So, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, any of our questioning was uh, unfair at all. Um, but it certainly raised some interesting points. For example, her claim that the entire media was suggesting that uh, Brexit was going to be a disaster. That's not quite how I remember it. There's lots in there to argue over, really. I mean, that's the, it's a classic uh, example of what we're trying to do with this podcast, really, is give people space to um, say their piece, basically. Make their, uh, make their claim, say their piece. There's a few things uh, I, I might have wanted to challenge, but uh, I think it's okay to let people uh, say what they're going to say and uh, let the listeners make up their own minds. And that's what we'll be doing when we have Remainers on as well. One thing she was wrong about, though, absolutely 100% wrong about, was the Welsh devolution referendum. That was in 1997, so I don't know how many times she's flown to South Africa. Um, (laughs) uh, Catherine Barnard, she was a good guest too, wasn't she? She is super clever. Uh, Very uh, glad to have her and her expertise by my side, and hopefully she will join me again soon on a future episode of this podcast. If you want to hear her again, or you've got other guests, either wonks or politicians, or from any walk of life really, you think we should be talking to about Brexit, please do get in touch. You can get me at UK in a changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com. That's the email address. But to be honest, you're probably better going through Twitter, where I am at Political Yeti, or you can get the UK in a changing Europe at UK and EU. Their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. Mine is james-miller.com. Theirs has got all sorts of stuff on it. So is mine. Mine's got... You can read about why I think the Lego Ninjago movie tells us something about Brexit on mine. And you don't get that on the UK and a Changing Europe website, which is uh, up to you whether you think that's for the best or not. Um, if you like this, please go onto your podcast channel of choice, whether that's iTunes or Acast or whatever. Like, subscribe, rate, review. Help us to get up those charts to get more listeners. The music again this week was Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. They are from Barcelona, apparently. I've been looking into who they are. Well, I say I've been looking in. That's basically all I've found out. Uh, I kind of left it at that because I saw the word Barcelona and the current climate. Like, oh, quick, turn that off. I don't want to know anymore. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with... Well, I don't know who we're going to have. We had a really good guest lined up. Uh, a, a name as big as Gisela Stewart. But he's... Uh, well, we can't use it anymore because he's like... Uh, well, mysterious reasons, let's just say. So I think we'll probably have... It's probably going to be budget day the next time we're we're launching or dropping a podcast so i think we might have a man called john mills he's a big labor donor um, and a big donor to labor leave as well give us his thoughts on the economy and what brexit means for the economy and business and labor indeed and all that sort of stuff this has been the brexit breakdown podcast from the uk to changing europe funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council and supported by King's College London. Join us in two weeks for another of the Brexit Breakdown podcasts. Thank you.